The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Monday, September 12th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Do Americans really care that much about the queen? The people who program TV networks seem to think so. ABC blew out its primetime coverage for wall-to-wall queen programming this Thursday. I guess that sounds impressive, but primetime programming, it's a little like long-distance call or Republican Party, greatly diminished in the last 20 years. When I tell you that the primetime programming that was to air was Kelly Ripa hosting a game show where grandkids and grandparents compete called Generation Gap, a Whoopi Goldberg hosted Dateline NBC ripoff about ripoffs called The Con, and a redo of Press Your Luck, you'll see what primetime programming really means. Ah, press your luck. I guess the Queen's passing proves that the whammy inevitably comes for us all. I was accused of, see, whammy reference, of being disrespectful and in poor taste for my previous Queen comments. This is unfounded. I was not disrespectful at all. I was disinclined to give into the hushed tones of international weeks-long mourning that seems like network knee-jerk obligation. I was possibly irreverent, but... As an American, it is my birthright and something of my responsibility to not have reverence for the sovereign whose house we threw off the shackles of years ago. Yes, thus allowing us to keep shackles on our own people longer than they'd have decreed. That is true. I acknowledge it. But still, I don't need to show reverence. I showed no cruelty. I bear no hostility. I am, however, allergic to the wall-to-wall cable and network tone of deep solemnity and whispered supplicancy that accompanies these events. Like every anniversary of 9-11, which I would never mock, but the obligatory nature of using it as an ongoing national moment which circumvents the usual nature of history. We act, well, our network newscasters, our newspapers, we act like 9-11 stands outside the flow of cause and event and reaction. It's still treated as quasi-holy. And so it was this Sunday, the 21st anniversary of 9-11, covered quite extensively by all the Sunday shows, except one, actually, ABC. Here is the entirety of ABC's this week's 9-11 coverage. That was the scene at Ground Zero just a short time ago. It's been 21 years since the 9-11 attacks. Queen Elizabeth once said right afterwards, grief is the price we pay for love. That was her message of support after that attack. Because 90% of this week was queen, queen, queen. The main anchor was in London. The show gave itself over to the passing of a monarch who will be missed, but also quite easily replaced, unless Charles screws it up. However, I'm not anti-queen. I am not anti-monarchy for Britain. And it does seem like the Brits quite liked their queen and the institution of the monarchy. And so you know what? I defer to their national preference for them. The best argument against the queen or any institution and expenditure is a cost-benefit analysis. The benefit is a bit of continuity from the past, a dignified figure who can perform ceremonial duties, which frees up politicians who have to do the actual work. But what's the cost? It's literally an expenditure from the national treasury as funded by the people. So I looked it up and it turns out the total taxpayer funded sovereign grant which funds all of the royal family, 
is 86.3 million pounds. Uh, 51.8 of that is core funding and an extra 34.5 million pounds for refurbishment of Buckingham Palace, which is the sort of expenditure that Americans might have to or be asked to or forced to undertake when they refurbish the Smithsonian or the White House when that happens, maybe a national park. One pound, 49 pence for every Brit to have a royal family. It seems like it's worth it. You can even tell the royal family that they're entitled to the jewels. They can feel like they own something really valuable. It's not like anyone was going to make any money off the royal jewels anyway. You keep them in a ceremonial case in a museum. You tell a bunch of people, oh, yeah, they quote unquote belong to you. It's an easy way of getting off funding a lifestyle. You know, Netflix in Britain is 10.99, 10 pounds 99 pence. I don't I don't know how much tuppence. I guess it'll be twice as much. But 10 pounds 99 standard subscription in the UK. So, we're talking to fund a queen is the same as 4 days of Netflix or subscription to the Daily Mail, 65 pounds a year. It auto renews at 99 pounds. So the first year is 8 days of the Daily Mail and you get a queen. 12 days in subsequent years for a queen. And her whole family. That's actually less of a package deal and more of a millstone. Anyway, the question is, would you go, not even you, but your cousin in Britain, would you go 12 days without the Daily Mail to have a nice queen? It's kind of a Mobius strip question because about a third of the Daily Mail's coverage is the royal family at any one time. Also, you can argue that you might pay to go without the Daily Mail. And then there's the notion of the people who experience it at 65 pounds a year and say, you know what, jack my price 50% having been exposed to a year's worth of the Daily Mail. For the queen, I'd say it's worth it, especially if you're judging against eight days of the tabloid that brings us the headline today. Nicola Sturgeon says her husband saved one of the queen's corgis from being electrocuted after it began chewing through a lamp switch. Thank God. And like I said, Daily Mail, monarchy, a bit like a Mobius strip. On the show today, prestige in the international stage for the United States, a country that does have a Donald Trump. Oh, and uh, iTunes, why not go to that podcast app and give us a review? Everyone else will tell you it helps people find the show. I doubt that's true. I think listening all the way through or much of the way through actually helps you. But if you would leave a written review, it doesn't have to be five stars. Four is okay. I just don't like the one star based on, you know, one day I tried to fire it up and it didn't work. Or a little pet peeve, you know, Mike Pesca is a guy who has it in for corgis, that sort of thing. But first, most Americans were quite surprised by the insurrection on January 6th. Most Americans does not include my next guest. Luke Mogelson was shocked by what he saw from the rioting crowd at the Capitol, but he was right inside of it, and he had been chronicling those rioters and would-be rioters for many years. He's a reporter for The New Yorker and came ready to cover something big on January 6th. It's all part of his new book, The Storm Is Here, An American Crucible, Luke Mogelson, up next. Luke Mogelson has been writing for The New Yorker since 2013 in that capacity and beforehand with The New York Times Magazine. He's been to war zones, foreign and domestic. 
So this means not just Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq, but also Minneapolis after George Floyd, Portland when Antifa protesters beset the courthouse, and of course, the January 6th riots. You saw his footage that he took for the New Yorkers inside the Senate chamber. There was the QAnon shaman holding forth which we got a glimpse of because of Luke's documentary style. He talks to the protesters slash militia members and makes us understand what really is going on here. His new book is called The Storm is Here, An American Crucible. Luke Mogelson, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me. From reporting in the actual war zones, is that where the idea of reporting for these domestic units sprang up? It just seemed natural. It seemed to you or editors that there was overlap between what you were seeing there and what was brewing here? Um, certainly, once I saw reports in uh, the spring early on in the pandemic of uh, anti-lockdowners mobilizing at state capitals with flak jackets, Kevlar helmets, and uh, assault rifles. Um, I was interested to learn more about uh, where that was coming from. Uh, and I had no idea, obviously, at the time where it would lead. Um, but it was enough. I'm even just visually, uh, there were there were enough kind of echoes uh with some of my foreign correspondents to um to for me to feel like it was it was worth uh coming home and checking out right so you're speaking to me from france now had you already covered those yellow vest riots of uh 2018 yeah i was living in paris at the time and certainly um uh yeah i wasn't gonna just uh stay home for for those uh protests um and riots. So I, I, I went out uh, a few times um, and, and reported on them. Right. So there are waves of populism besetting the Western world. And you could look for you look, could look to those riots. I mean, in the UK, they think that Bill Gates is foisting 5G upon us. But Michigan and Lansing, where protesters took over the state capital, is the big difference between this sentiment that's sweeping the world and how it's expressed here in the United States. Is the big difference the fact that the protesters here are armed? That's certainly one big difference. Yeah. And you saw that in Michigan. Now, when you were there, uh, and this was the first protest slash insurrection you were covering, were you there with the mindset, I've got to cover this event, or I want to understand the subculture, and I want to... Did you have an inkling that perhaps the contacts you were making at that event would come into play over the course of the next couple of years? Uh, no, absolutely not. I had no idea. Um... First of all, because it was, I, I went there and started uh, spending time with them and reporting on on these groups and movements before George Floyd was killed, and um, you know the the subsequent uprising against um, uh, for, for racial justice and police accountability really uh, changed the posture and uh, purpose of these groups that had previously been organizing around uh, opposing lockdown measures. Right. And 
so when did it become apparent to you that, or did it become apparent to you even after the events transpired that this might not be a one-off thing? You know, honestly, I was pretty surprised as soon as I showed up in Michigan by how, but he, how heated and bellicose uh, the rhetoric was among, you know, all of the, pretty much everyone I talked to um, that was upset about about uh, the lockdown and, and pandemic policies. Um, and even even then, in May, people were telling me, you know, we're only a trigger pull away. That I met people that were actually in Michigan that were en route to D.C. because they were worried about a, a coup by, you know, globalist pedophiles and agents of the New World Order. So it was definitely in the water and the terrain was ripe to be exploited for, you know, larger scale violence. And so when you encounter that, there is so much of their philosophy is ridiculous. Some of it isn't, even if the uh, means that they pursue to get redress is extreme. Do you say to yourself, this is ridiculous and dangerous or do you emphasize one over the other? How do you um, how do you process that, and then how do you communicate that to the audience? Uh, that's a that's a good question, um, and it's difficult because you know you don't want to spend too much time getting into the nuances and the nitty gritty of you know why one person thinks that the Satanists are are telling us their secret plans and coded language and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and why. You know, somebody else thinks that germ theory was implanted by a Jewish cabal in the Middle Ages. And, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a slippery slope once you really start trying to understand the specifics of these theories. I think it's more useful to uh, uh, try to articulate why they appeal to, to people. Right. And you even went so far as to make a spreadsheet to try to make sense of all the <laughs> theories. And that was kind of a wasted time. But was there one through line you hit upon? Well, the through line was basically that every that for all of these theories, um, whether it was, you know, the New World Order or Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci um, concocting the virus or 3G uh, towers uh, spreading it. Um, the through line for all of this stuff was whatever the conspiracy was, it, it, its ultimate purpose was to prevent Trump from being reelected. So you uh, were there in Michigan and then uh, the summer of 2020 post George Floyd. But you also were at some of the precursors to the January 6th insurrection, which I want to get to. But what did you see on I think it was December 12th and before that? law enforcement, certainly, and much of the rest of the public weren't seeing. Uh, yeah. So there was a rally on November 14th and December 12th. Again, the November 14th one was the Million MAGA March. And uh, and I, I attended both of them. I was stunned on November 14th by how many uh, people showed up uh, to show support for, for then-President Trump. Um, I'd really never seen anything like that. Uh, and you had uh, all kinds of uh, people from across the right, um, extremists like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the America Firsters, Three Percenters, different militias, Joey Gibson's group from Portland, but also just a lot of quote unquote normal 
mainstream conservatives that had become convinced um, that, you know, that the, the election had been stolen and they were victims of this uh, historic grave injustice. And at both events, uh, bas- basically what happened was during the day, there were speeches and marches and uh, some kind of more out there than others. And then at night, there was violence and vandalism. And a lot of these groups who would go on to um, attack law enforcement at the Capitol on January 6th and and, 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 uh, storm the building, they were basically running roughshod over downtown D.C., vandalizing and attacking historic black churches, um, vandalizing um, gay-owned businesses, heckling, uh, harassing, and assaulting black pedestrians and cyclists. It was really, really ugly. And, um, you know, we, we didn't, I think, uh, law enforcement, the media, the public, uh, really, uh, missed it and didn't pay nearly enough attention to, to what was happening on those, those two uh, nights at the, at the Capitol. So uh, I want to ask you about your tactics of who you talk to and who you make contact with. So Joey Gibson, who we talked about, what about some of these other leaders of Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Gripers, or any of the other groups? Well, for all of almost all of these thing, scenes in the book, whether it was Gibson or uh, you know Enrique Tario, the national chairman of the Proud Boys, or his deputy Joe Biggs. Um, or Nicholas Fuentes, the leader of this white nationalist group called the Groypers. I, it, it wasn't as if I had some special access to them or was hanging out with them, you know, at, at their homes or at the bar. I simply uh, showed up to all of their public events and recorded what they said and recorded what they did. Um, and, and, and the scenes in the book are just basically direct transcriptions of their actions and, and words that I witnessed firsthand, but in public settings. Did they know who you were with? Did they care? Um, you know, I would, I would, intro- especially in Michigan, I, w- I would, you know, I was introducing myself to everybody and including the militia leaders. And sometimes at, they would, you know, indulge me with a few questions and same in Portland uh, with the Proud Boys uh, and in Vancouver, less so in DC just because honestly it was kind of a dangerous uh, if just the energy felt kind of a little wild and dangerous and I didn't necessarily want to out myself while these people were basically committing crimes uh, in front of me so yeah it was, it was a mix but you know generally I have to say that uh, when I did introduce myself as a journalist uh, as a reporter for the New Yorker magazine people were, um, cordial with me, polite, you know, I, I, I didn't really experience, uh, too much hostility. Well, they're not um, naive. They yeah. want publicity. And another thing to consider is that, so there is media there who's extremely sympathetic, right? Alex Jones's crew was there and I watched hours of footage from them. The people committing crimes are just as easily identifiable on a camera shot by an Alex Jones crew member as uh, on a camera shot by Luke Mogelson. That's true. And that makes actually my job a lot easier uh, because if you go to these things, you know, whether it's an Antifa rally in Portland or a Proud Boys event in, in, in DC or wherever, everybody has their cell phones out. 
Yeah. And everybody's, you know, live streaming or filming or taking selfies. And it was the same on January 6th. You know, that's yeah. why so many people are in jail right now. Yeah. And it was not that was not an action characterized by anyone wanting to cover their tracks. I mean, you tell this great anecdote. You're in the uh, buffet line after all the events take place on January 6th. And some guy starts talking about how peaceful he and his mom are. Turns out that's the infamous zip tie guy <laughs> who wasn't peaceful at all, who assaulted the Capitol. And you're, you know, crap. Hacker Jack journalism was literally just being next to him eating a buffet. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's, it's kind of hard to remember this, um, but it's important to keep in mind that, you know, at the time and throughout 2020, all of these people, the, the true believers and fanatics that were showing up uh, to these events, um, and especially the ones that were enamored enough of, of Trump to, you know, commit felonies on his behalf. They thought that he was going to retain power. They thought that, you know, Biden was was not going to be sworn in and that there would and some of them, you know, like the QAnon followers uh, genuinely believed that there would be this kind of day of reckoning that they called uh, the storm and followed by the Great Awakening. Yeah. So considering their their worldview, it's not so surprising that they um were as unconcerned as they were about, you know, incriminating themselves with, with video, video and photographic evidence. Right. And as you said, it was perfectly legal for them to enter the and occupy the Michigan State House with guns. The commander in chief was giving them signals all along that this is the right thing to do. They were live streaming, yelling, we're taking back the people's house, obviously thinking this was the right thing to do, maybe even a sanctioned thing to do. We're making a citizen's arrest. There was nothing in their mindset that would indicate that they were committing any sort of wrong for which they would get punished. And in fact, you could also tie in the what you just talked about, how uh, December 12th and the Million MAGA March weren't even precedent. There wasn't even a huge police presence on January 6th because it didn't seem that too many people were taking it too seriously. Yeah, you know, it, it, that's a very good point. And I, the, the, the unpreparedness of uh, the D.C. police on January 6th was all the more shocking for me because I had been at the November 14th and December 12th events, just like those cops had. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the the park police, the metropolitan police, the Capitol police, they were all in the middle of, uh, of these melees on in November and December. And by the way, at at those events, you know, there was a real turn, uh, among Trump supporters who had been, who had kind of, um, mobilized around backing the blue since the murder of George Floyd in DC on November 14th and December 12th, that switched because the police that were there, you know, they were doing their jobs and they were, uh, as best as they could trying to at least separate the, the, uh, more violent contingents of the Trump supporters from the counter, from counter protesters to avoid, you know, massive brawls in, in downtown DC. Yeah. And that absolutely enraged the Trump supporters. And I heard, you know, many of the same, uh, insults, uh, hurled at, at the DC police by Trump supporters at those events that I had heard lobbed at Portland police by anti-fascists over the summer and the fall. 
defund the police. You know, yeah. <laughs> Put the gun in your mouth, traitor, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, so they knew, the DC cops knew uh, who, who they were dealing with. They had encountered them firsthand, uh, not once, but twice, uh, by the time January 6th came around. So there we leave Luke as January 6th came around. He knew he was on the precipice of ugliness. Not sure he knew that it would be so literally true. Tomorrow, we will join Luke as he swept along by the crowd, to the Capitol, through smashed windows, and as he becomes the first journalist to document the breach of the Senate floor, tomorrow on The Gist, the storm is here. And now the spiel. Kamala Harris was on Meet the Press answering questions about the president calling Republicans semi-fascists, her thoughts about running if Joe Biden doesn't, and if the filibuster should go. She used the usual rhetorical technique of answering the question she wanted to answer, not always the question that was asked, and she did so with a certain pivot word. What is a semi-fascist? Listen, I think that um, when we, let's not get caught up in, 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 politicizing the fact that should is the is the democratic party making a mistake here by by you know those people could win if you're not careful i mean listen i'm not gonna tell people how to run their campaigns uh, you thought about uh, have you thought through the scenarios that you might face on january 6 2025 <laughs> not at all <laughs> no i mean well listen uh, uh, what have i thought about i have thought about the fact you're talking about the election the election yeah uh Listen, the president has been very clear um, that uh, he intends to run again. Ironically, the cumulative effect, at least on this viewer, was to tune out or to be hyper aware that a deflection was forthcoming. No great scandal in that all politicians do it. Some just do it better than others. There was, however, one of the times I was asked to listen, and I did quite closely. I came to a slightly different conclusion than the one the vice president would have me form. The question was about threats to our democracy from within. I have met with and I've had conversations with over 100 foreign heads of state, presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, kings. And, you know, when we as the United States walk into those rooms around the world, we have had the honor and privilege historically of holding our head up as a defender and an example of a great democracy. And that then gives us the legitimacy and the standing to talk about the importance of democratic principles, rule of law, human rights. And one of the things, though, that comes with that privilege is that we hold ourselves out to be a role model, which means the rest of the world, like any role model, watches what we do to see if it matches up with what we say. The presence of widespread election denial and a major political figure untethered to facts certainly doesn't help the United States standing in the eyes of others, but doesn't really hurt. Who is judging the U.S. harshly for our short-term embrace but ultimate rejection of a demagogue? The U.K., fresh off Boris Johnson, France's Emmanuel Macron, who had to contend with Marine Le Pen, 
maybe our adversaries, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, maybe Modi atop the world's largest democracy, or maybe our problematic allies, the Saudis. Maybe they're all looking at the U.S. as a tarnished testament to the rule of the people. I doubt it, though. And it's not just that every other country in the world is either an autocracy already or ruled by a populist or threatens to be so. It's that the United States did beat back this threat. So when Biden, Harris, Blinken, or an American emissary enters the room and communicates by word or intonation, do you believe the last guy? Do you think the other world leaders don't understand that an important aspect of democracy is that they're vulnerable to the mob, but that the current iteration of this democracy is that we overcame it? Every country to the south of us in this hemisphere doesn't need that lesson. Most all the countries of Europe going back 70 years don't need to learn that lesson. Like a cancer survivor or a victim of domestic violence who got away from an abuser, America's ties to the undemocratic forces of MAGA might give it more credibility in a way. If you were a sprawling, complex, would-be democracy, would you want Norway or New Zealand lecturing you on the challenges of integrating an unruly public into a coherent national ethos? I think the psychology behind the appeal to the damage America has taken to its credibility is that it will land on the ears of listeners who already agree with the sentiment. Preaching to the converted, which ain't nothing. It's why preachers have a job. But the argument's not going to convince the very person who's tempted to vote for an election-denying Secretary of State. In fact, the appeal to the good graces of foreign nationals its the very sort of argument that drives the America First crowd towards that very ranking of the countries. They, the MAGA crowd, thinks Obama made us look weak and Trump made us look strong. I think they're wrong. But telling a domestic audience they should change their views due to the opinion of foreign elites seems like it can never work. And it seems like it's not true. Now, all this might sound like an insult to the Biden slash Harris administration, at least on the narrow point I'm talking about. But overall, I do think they're doing a very good job in ways the vice president only hinted at. Take this later part of her explanation. Because there are so many issues going on in the world that I think require at least how we as Americans have traditionally thought about what is right, what is good, what should be fought for, uh, what should be human ideals, and certainly the ideals of democracies. That's an appeal to tradition, the traditional status of the United States as a human rights leader, which was actually really only true during a narrow period of time. The United States, for most of its existence, stuck to its own knitting, then started getting involved in world wars. And it was really only after the World War II era that the United States was seen as either a savior or a bulwark or at least the last healthy man standing. But soon thereafter, after images of the Berlin airlift faded, the United States stature as a shining city on the hill did too. There were CIA operations and wars of choice and wars of occupation and proxy wars. It didn't destroy the U.S. standing as a moral bulwark, but it did make it pretty clear we were a flawed one. But it seems we're less flawed at this moment than we have been for a while. We're no longer involved in Afghanistan. We're no longer lagging on the issue of climate change. Our military support of Ukraine is paying tangible dividends. There is strength in our moral bearing, but there's also strength in strength. The current combination of military might and prudent decision making is a strong one 
on the world stage. And we seem right now to have leadership strong enough to recognize our own flaws. Of course, a Trump re-election or MAGA wave would undo all of that. But then the problem wouldn't be one of the U.S. leading. The problem under that circumstance would be where the U.S. was headed toward. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. He passes his spins to Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oopperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>